Now, you have been given a handout with regard to the constitution of our church. Now, if you have your own constitution, a copy of the constitution that is, bring it with you in future, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to do this every adult Bible class on out. Well, we haven't discussed that, but we're going to start it now anyway. And uh, we're going to hand out probably as weeks go by that section which we will cover in that adult Bible class. But let me give you just a little bit of a reason why we're doing this. I mean, you all have your copy and you were all supposed to read it as you came into membership. And I'm sure that you have it then memorized after reading it back then. Uh, yeah, me neither. So um, why are we doing this? Well, your elders considered it wise after we completed a study through the confession of faith, which is that document, which is what we believe, what we stand for as a church. And in fact, that's one of the articles in our church constitution that we have the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith as the statement of what we believe here in this church. But after we finish that study, we have this other document which is read by prospective members so that they might know how we conduct ourselves as a church. What are those principles that guide us? Uh, not just what we believe, but what we do, how we act, how we govern the uh, meetings, the affairs of this church, what we commit ourselves to in coming into this the membership of this church. And so it, we thought it wise to also study uh, this document as well. Now, it's available for download at the church site. That's where I got my copy, uh, as well as I had an electronic copy sent to me by our church secretary. But uh, if you don't have it already, we're going to cover these first four articles, well, first two articles this morning, as well as the preamble and the foreword. Um, now, again, why are we doing this? Well, I think it's all the more necessary in our day as what used to be called churchmanship is really unheard of and unknown among churches. And what is churchmanship? Well, good churchmanship is uh, what Paul was talking about with Timothy when he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and following, I am writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, there's something so important that if Paul didn't get to Timothy right away, he needed to put it in writing and send it to him so that he had it right then and there. And so what was that? In case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And he goes on with this confession. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's all about our Savior. And we want him to be honored and, glorif uh, and glorified in his church. And that's why we ought to know how one ought to conduct himself in the church of God. And so that's what the confession, our church constitution is about. How you ought to conduct yourself in the church. What is good churchmanship so neglected in our day? 
Also, this morning we're going to get to, and, and I had hoped to go a little further, but as I went through this, as I began to prepare, it was evident we're not going to get beyond Article 2, the purpose, uh, and the purpose of our church. That is vital. What are we here for? Now, I've, I've been to other churches that have a mission statement. I remember with my dad, this is back when they lived in Illinois, so it's more than 20 years ago, we were looking for another church. He was a bit disappointed with the church they were attending or members of. And so we visited a, a few churches in the area and he was looking to me for help and guidance uh, with what little wisdom I would have to guide him and help him. We went to this one church, kind of a well-known largish church in their area. And after the service, we asked them for a statement of their beliefs, a doctrinal statement. What do you believe here? And the person, I think she was the church secretary that we were speaking with, was, was shocked. Well, nobody ever asked for that. We have a mission statement. Oh, this is what we are aiming to do. Well, but what do you believe? You know, about God, about Christ, about the gospel. Well, this is what we want to do. But what do you, what do you believe? They couldn't answer the question. That was like, how do, I can't believe this. <laughs> what do you believe? I don't know. <laughs> well, but they had a mission statement. Well, if you want to know, and if you ever came into the door here and didn't ask for a doctrinal statement, we could give you that easily. If you asked us for a mission statement, what's the mission statement of Trinity Baptist Church? That's kind of like the in thing to have. Well, here it is in this purpose statement, if you will. We have a purpose statement. We're going to come to that this morning. And so it's I think it's good that we know why we're here. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on that question. Now, I didn't have copied the foreword to the Constitution. Let me read that, though. Uh, you could, If you have your own copy, you could look it up or even download it on your phone right this very minute, I guess. But uh, here's uh, what the foreword says. The original Constitution of the Church, then known as the Trinity Church of West Essex, was adopted in March 1967. Now, who was here then? Uh, Mr. Gergulus was here. Uh, my in-laws were here, but they're in a better place now. Not too many are surviving from that day, 1967. But anyway, the, the original constitution was adopted then. The name of the church was changed to the Trinity Baptist Church of Essex Fells in 1971. And a number of amendments to the Constitution were adopted in March 1978. Now, that's all before my time. I came to the church to attend the academy September 1978. Since that time, the elders have compiled suggested changes, resulting in an even more extensive revision process from 1987 to 1995. A proposed draft was distributed to the membership in April 1995, and time was given during 12 consecutive adult Bible classes to present the proposed changes. At a congregational business meeting held on October 1, 1995, the Constitution of Trinity Baptist Church was unanimously adopted in its present form. All right, now, I was in the Philippines then, and I'm sure that a number of you were here October 1995, 
and witnessed that change and were among those who voted unanimously to adopt this constitution. Now, notice, though, that there was, there's been a, a, a series of revisions. There's been a process because this document is not the Bible. We don't ever revise the Bible. Uh, there are new translations that come out, but it's based on, it's the Bible. We don't uh, alter God's word. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. But there have been revisions made to our Constitution, perhaps in response to differing circumstances that the church has found itself in, perhaps in because of a sharper understanding and a desire to refine the Constitution, to more closely reflect what the Bible says about how one ought to conduct himself in the church. And we may continue to do that, because our goal is to have a Constitution that reflects what the Bible teaches. It's not what we like. It's not what we want to do. It's not that, well, this is the majority. It's what does God's word say? That's the guiding principle. Let me go on. Because we believe that the Bible must dictate the doctrine, 1689, and life, confession, or uh, church constitution, scripture references which form the basis of our practice, have been considerably expanded. In other words, that revision done in 1995 added a lot more scripture reference to show that what we're doing, our conduct in the church, is based on the Bible. These references include portions which directly address a specific issue, as well as those which contain a more general principle. It is hoped that each reader of this document will, re will study it, with the noble spirit of the Bereans who received the apostles' teaching, but then examined the scriptures diligently to confirm the truth of that instruction. Referring to Acts 17.11, those Berean believers, or Jewish, uh, Jews who listened to Paul and then went to the Bible, the Old Testament at that time, to see, is what he's saying matching the Bible? And I hope you all do that when we preach here, and we all do that, I hope, with our confession of faith. That's why we have the references. And so that's why we have this adult Bible class, because we want to go now to those scripture passages behind what's stated in our church constitution and show this is why we do what we do. And then the forward goes on, last paragraph. Although much effort has been given to prepare this constitution as an effective method for ordering our life together, we recognize that it is still an imperfect and changeable product of men. We therefore prayerfully commit this constitution and the church it is intended to govern into the hands of our omniscient and changeless God, whose word shall stand forever." the elders of Trinity Baptist Church. And then it adds here in my downloaded copy, amended January 2015. So from 1995, 20 years later, 2015, I was also in the Philippines then. Uh, some of you were here then. I don't know what those amendments were. Was that adding more scripture references, Pastor Chansky? Or? Okay, so again, seeking to refine it, to bring it more in conformity with what the scriptures teach. It's not a perfect document, we acknowledge that, but we want to have our conduct, reflecting 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
honorable in the sight of God in his household, in his church, according to his word. So that's the foreword of our church constitution. Now we're going to look at what is stated you have there before you. And there are 11 articles. So we're going to, wow, well, we're going to, through three out of 11. Well, some of them are much longer, so don't get your hopes up that this is going to be a short uh, series. All right, Constitution of the, Trin the Trinity Baptist Church of Montville. Preamble. We, the members of the Trinity Baptist Church of Montville, do ordain and establish the following articles to which we voluntarily commit ourselves. Now, this was adopted unanimously in 1995. And those who there voted said, yes, we voluntarily commit ourselves to this. When you became a member of Trinity Baptist Church, you read this constitution as well as the confession. And you were asked in that interview with the elders, do you commit yourself to these things voluntarily? And you all who are members said yes. Right? I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be a member. If you said, no, I can't do that, then we would say, well, nice to, you know, we're, we're, you're, we're glad you're here, but you can't be a member. Because we all volunteer. Nobody twisted your arm and said, you better become a member here or else. Nobody put a gun to your head. You voluntarily, of your own free will, if I may put it that way, of your own accord, wanted to be a part of this church. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because part of that commitment was attendance at the stated meetings. And you're here, so y'all are okay. But there are other folks who ain't here. Uh, they voluntarily, and maybe you're watching online, you voluntarily committed yourself. There may be, you know, some providential hindrances. We acknowledge that. But we want to see you. You have a lot of empty seats here. I know there's some down in the Sunday school classes and so on. But we voluntarily submit ourselves. Not to what men wrote but to what God says, which is behind what's in this Constitution. All right? Agreed? I am in agreement. I agree with what I committed myself to whenever that was. And for me, it was 1978. I'm sure, you know, we have history, but y'all are here. We're glad you're here. All right, the name of the church. What's in the name? Well, this article is going to be rather brief to deal with. The official name of this church, as specified in the Certificate of Amendment to the Certificate of Incorporation, because there are legal documents behind this, is the Trinity Baptist Church of Montville. It used to be West Essex, but now we're not in Essex County anymore. Uh, used to be, um, what was that town again? Essex Fells? No. We're in Montville, and so I, I guess that was probably one of those amendments that had to be made in 1995 because we had been in Montville by that time for uh, more than 10 years. Anyway, uh, what's in the name? 
Trinity Baptist Church. Why do we have this name? Well, it means something. You know, this old saying, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. In other words, you could call a rose uh, a stinkweed, and it would still smell nice. But a stinkweed for a rose doesn't, doesn't really match, does it? Why do we have this name? Does it matter? Yes, it does. Trinity. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the triune God, Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, equal in power and divinity and dignity and being. They're all God. But there's only one God in three persons. And this part of our name proclaims to all the world we stand on the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity, Baptist. We believe that only believers should be members of the church and that only believers should be baptized in that sacrament of admission. Believers' baptism, immersion, a symbol of what God does in bringing about new life, buried to sin, raised to new life, what God does in washing away sin, that we're cleansed and pardoned and accepted with God. And that's what is pictured when this baptismal tank is used. And we pray that it would be used more often. Church. We believe that the church is God's only institution, only organization on earth to accomplish his work. Of course, he uses family, and we love families here. And he uses the state in its own sphere. And we gladly obey what the state says, unless it contradicts the scriptures. We believe that the church, though, is the only organization Jesus founded on earth to do his spiritual work, to uh, proclaim his gospel. Now, of course, in the family, you teach the gospel to your children, yes. The state doesn't do that. We don't expect the state to proclaim the gospel. The church is Christ's only institution, organization to accomplish his purpose. And we are a church that is an organized and definite group, to use Pastor Nichols' definition, of confessed disciples of Jesus. That's what we are. We're a church. And it's important that we realize that we are part of Christ's organization. We belong to his body, the church. So that's in the name. Now, let me just pause here. This is a Sunday school class and a Bible class after all. Are there any questions about that? Why we have this name? Yes. Can you remind us why we are not called Reformed Baptist Church? Trinity Reformed Baptist Remind you. Well, if I knew, I would remind you. <laughs> I can only suppose because I wasn't there when that decision was made or discussed, if it ever was. Uh, well, Pastor Chansky? <laughs> All right. Uh, I would only suggest, Pastor Carlson, maybe you were here.
Yeah. It may be similar to the reason why in the Philippines we did not even call ourselves Baptist. Why not? Because there were so many, quote, Baptist churches that we didn't want to be associated with, to, to be honest, sadly, uh, who were known for their, you know, <clears throat> uh, fierce antagonism to certain things and uh, very awkward <laughs> Uh, dealings with people. And we didn't want, say, a, a person in the world to look at us and say, oh, he's one of them. And maybe that's the, the case here, as Pastor Carlson was saying, that there are so many, quote, Reformed churches, and we might not want to be associated with all of them, those with rain, rainbow flags or whatever, and there are such. Um, so, you know, of course, there are Baptist churches that we, that, that we might not want to associate with. But anyway, um, I would not be totally opposed to it, because that's what we are, but we also don't want to scare away anybody who might not want to start out that way, you know, going to, quote, a Reformed church. Anyway, so uh, the present company of elders was not in on that discussion. So we'll, we'll come back to you. I'll, I'll refer that to a, a future week. All right. <clears throat> now let's come to the real meat of our discussion this morning. And that is the purpose of this church. And it starts out, the first statement is, the purpose of this church is to glorify the God of the scriptures. Now let's just stop there. We're going to break this uh, section one and section two down into various parts. Because you can see that uh, there are scripture references after each section, each statement. And so here we have the overarching goal of the church. You notice that the other parts say, in promoting his worship, in evangelizing sinners, in edifying saints. In other words, these are ways in which we glorify God. But the umbrella purpose... The overarching main purpose of this church, why we're here today and whenever, is to glorify the God of the scriptures. And there's only one reference here. I'm going to add to them. Ephesians chapter 3, verses tw verse 21. We'll begin at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So again, the focus, we're looking up to him. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, to which the Apostle Paul adds, Amen. And I'm sure your hearts echo, Amen. This is why we're here, to give glory to him in his church. And so when we meet here Sunday by Sunday, you know, it's not just, okay, it's Sunday, I got to go to church. It's, I'm here with this purpose. I'm here to exalt the God of heaven, the God who sent his son to save me from my sins. I'm here for a reason. And it's a glorious reason. I'm here to give praise to him. And so that affects how we sing, it affects how we sit there, it affects how we listen. It's not just ho-hum, oh, another sermon. 
I'm here to glorify God in my conduct in his church. Doesn't that make a difference? Doesn't that give your, if I may put it this way, your life meaning? <laughs> I'm here for his glory. Now let's add a couple of verses to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 and 32. 1 Corinthians 10, familiar verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, even go to church, do all to the glory of God. Of God. Then he adds, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't give offense to the church, but instead give glory to God in the church. Whatever you do, do it for his glory. And another key text, I'm, I'm amazed really that this text did not make it into our church constitution at this point. What is a key text for Trinity Baptist Church? A key verse, which you might see on stationary correspondence of Trinity Baptist Church. Anybody? Julie? Okay. Say it. Romans 11. 33. Let's read the whole section. 33 to 36. The verse is verse uh, 38. Uh, 33 to th it's verse 36. My print is very small here. Right? Verse 36 is the verse. But let's begin at verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That verse is printed in my mind as inextricably associated with Trinity Baptist Church of Montville. <laughs> I can remember Pastor Martin proclaiming that verse, preaching on it, of him, through him, to him. In other words, he is the source, he is the means, he is the goal of all things, including this church. Why are we here? Well, he saved us from him. How do we work? Through him. We do not depend on our own wisdom, our own strength, through him. What's the purpose? To him. All we do, this verse proclaims it. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so this is why we gather, not primarily to have fellowship, although we love each other and we love to see each other. We love to uh, join each other. If you join with a fellowship meal in the afternoon, it's, it's a delightful time. If you have people in your home and we talk with each other and get to know one another, we hang around. I mean, this church is one which is remarkable for the fact that we're not like, um, forgive the illustration, like cockroaches when you turn the light on and they all scatter, um, but rather like flies that or like, um, uh, well, excuse me. No, no, no. That's not the word I'm looking for. Uh, gummo, gummo. What's gummo, gummo in English? Um, <laughs> 
These are little critters that uh, when you turn on the lights, they, they fly around the lights. Moths, yeah, but there's a, there's a different critter in the Philippines. Anyway, um, that's what we're like. Moths, we, we just don't want to go. We love to hang around with each other. Fellowship is important. But that's not the primary goal. We gather to meet with God. We gather to glorify him. We gather to exalt his majesty. And let me just, I want to, I'm not going to quote it, but I want to refer to a statement of B.B. Warfield, the fundamental principle of Calvinism. Now it was asked, are we Reformed? Yes. Are we Calvinistic? Yes. We didn't put that in our name either. And some people react to the word Calvinist or, or the name John Calvin. Uh, forgive me, but he taught a lot of good stuff. And you can read his institutes and be blessed. We are a Calvinistic church. And this man, B.B. Warfield, wrote more than 100, or, yeah, more than 100 years ago, what is the fundamental principle of Calvinism? What's the heart of a Calvinist? Well, here it is. He says, the heart of Calvinism, the fundamental principle of Calvinism lies, I won't read it all, lies in a profound apprehension of God and his majesty. In other words, it comes by knowing God. He's a majestic, great God. Being confronted with him. Coming to know him in his majesty. With the inevitably accompanying, poignant, powerful realization of the exact nature of the relation sustained to him by the creature as such, and particularly by the sinful creature. I'm a sinful creature before a holy God, a majestic God, a powerful God. How can I relate to him? How can I know him? Only by his grace. And this sense of the majesty of God and me as a sinner in his presence well, how can we react to this God? How can we relate to this? We want to glorify him because he saved us. He goes on, and I, again, I'm not going to read it, I'll paraphrase it. The man who believes in God without reservation is determined that God will be God to him in all his thinking, feeling, willing, in the entire, I am reading, the entire compass of his life activities, intellectual, moral, spiritual, Throughout all the individual social religious relations, he is by the force of that strictest of all logic, which presides over the outworking of principles into thought and life. He is by the very necessity of the case, a Calvinist. Now, I love this statement of Warfield because it's saying, if you've really come to know God, this majestic, holy God, and you're a sinner, and yet now you're in fellowship with him. You have a relationship with him. It's all by grace. And it's all by his initiative. It's not that I decided someday, well, I want to relate to this God. When you realize who God is and who you are, <laughs> and you've come to know him, Warfield says, you're a Calvinist. Because <laughs> you don't pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. You say, it's all of grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. This is what Warfield is saying. And then he goes on. He says, this religious relation, this relation to God, 
attains its purity only when an attitude of absolute dependence on God is not merely assumed, say, in prayer. We pray and ask God for blessings. But this extends through all the activities of life. I depend on God for everything. Intellectual, emotional, operative, and religion reaches its stability only when the sinful soul rests in humble, self-emptying trust on the God of grace. You see, we as a church, we've come to know God. He's not because of us. We've been known by God, as Paul writes. We've experienced that the Lord is kind, to use Peter's expression. And we know this is all because he reached down sovereignly out of heaven and touched our lives and brought us to himself. And therefore, we are motivated. We're driven. <laughs> we have a purpose-driven life. <laughs> and that is, we want to magnify this God who came and washed me from my sins with the blood of his Son and delivered me from the wrath to come and called me into fellowship with himself. I have a burning desire to exalt him. And so I was drawn to this quote of Warfield as an expression of why we have this as our purpose. <laughs> because he sovereignly called us from darkness to light, from the dominion and control of Satan into fellowship with his dear son. And what can we render to our God in response to all this kindness? That's why you're here, right? Because you've tasted the Lord Jesus is kind. So we want to glorify him. How do we do that? And then the rest of the paragraph goes on to the ways and means that we glorify him. And the first is in promoting his worship. And we'll just read these verses that are quoted or they're listed in the church constitution. Exodus 20, verses 3 to 11. I'm not going to read them all. You know the commandments. But this section, this first table of the law, which is verses 3 to 11, no other gods. You shall not worship God through an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We reverently speak the name of God in this church. We hold his name in great awe. And when we hear people use his name loosely, and they say, oh my God. And they're not praying. They're not calling on him. And I remember confronting one person who did this when I was in college. Actually, it was a, a, a sister in Christ who confronted this person. And he said, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Exactly the point. Using God's name and not meaning anything. No, we honor his name in this church. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are ways... We desire to honor and glorify God in his church on his day. John 4, 23 and 24, the next reference there. 
But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is God seeking? Now, according to some churches and some evangelists, God is seeking to make you happy, wealthy, uh, and healthy. No, God is seeking worshipers. That's why we're here. He sought us and he found us and he called us to be his worshipers. That's what we're about in promoting the worship of his name. First Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Oh, by, by the way, just pausing for a second before I come to the next text. We worship in spirit and truth. Now, think of this, brothers and sisters, when we come to worship in spirit. Now, of course, that means with the aid of the Holy Spirit, but it also means not coldly. It means in a lively way, engaged. Uh, I'm sure that you've experienced what I've experienced, and I confess this sadly, that sometimes you sing, I sing, and because the hymn may be familiar, as you're singing, your mind wanders. That's not worship in spirit. We want our spirits to be engaged with the help of the Holy Spirit in worshiping our God and truth. And so we have as our guide, of course, the confession, but it's based on the Bible. We have as our guide the truth of God. How to worship. We have this book. We worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 20, uh, that's John 4, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Now it's not evident in our English translations because we don't have a distinction between second person singular and second person plural. You. I'm talking to you. Now, is that you or is it y'all? Well, thankfully, down south, we do have a second person plural, but it's not, it's not extended this far north. Um, we have a few transplants up here, but y'all understand what I'm talking about. But um, this is a second person plural. This is what y'all are. You are a temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. Now, how do we regard this temple? We regard it with reverence. We regard it carefully. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Take heed how you treat the church. <laughs> Handle it with care. Handle it with love, with respect. This is what you are, the temple of God. We treat it as holy. We treat it carefully. We treat it lovingly. 1 Peter 2.5 is the last of the references here. You also as living stones. We're going to come to this tonight. 
You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones. Each one has a part to play. We're, we're laid on each other. We're intri intimately, intricately connected. You know, that's why bricklayers don't stack the bricks, you know, in a, in a line vertically. They're like this, overlaying, oh, because we're all interconnected. Uh, we don't want this wall to fall. You are living stones built up in a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We're not only living stones in the house. We're go inside the house. We're all priests, spiritual priests offering up what? Spiritual sacrifices. When we sing, that's a spiritual sacrifice. When we pray, that's a, an incense of a, a sweet odor before God. All that we do, when we listen, we come and we hear God's word. That's part of our spiritual sacrifice to God. A broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. We listen in this way. Pastor Martin and I would highly recommend uh, these sermons, and I'm not sure where you could find them. I mean, they're on, they're out there somewhere. In his, um, he, he, I remember him preaching about spiritual sacrifices. Very, I wept at the sermon. This is what we're about: offering up spiritual sacrifices to our God. That's we what we do in desiring to glorify Him. We promote His worship. Now, let's check my time. Think about this later on when we come to our worship service. What are we about here? We're promoting the worship of the great and glorious God in spirit and truth as living stones, as spiritual priests. See, it's not just the pastor up here who's doing all the work. We're all engaged. We're all involved. We're all, as it were, holding up holy hands. To glorify and exalt our God. You're part of this. We're engaged. We're involved. We're active in doing this work. And so that's the first means of glorifying God in promoting his worship. Second thing, it goes on and says, in evangelizing sinners, Acts 13 and 14, in 1 Corinthians, and it has several references here. Uh, evangelizing sinners. And again, the church is the only organization Jesus instituted here on earth. I will build my church. Not a parachurch organization, not a mission board. It's the church. And that's why I was sent by this church to labor in the Philippines. Evangelizing sinners. That's why the, our brethren go out some Saturdays. That's why you talk to your kids about the gospel that's why in our Sunday school classes, that's why here, week by week, we are seeking to evangelize sinners. In Acts 13 and 14, we have the record of Paul's first missionary journey, and it gives us a pattern of how to do this work. Uh, you know, the work, and it's interesting that it doesn't mention Matthew 28, 19 and 20, going therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission. I think I would add that into this section, but I wasn't here, so they didn't ask me. But uh, Acts 13 and 14 show us how Paul did it. 
how he made disciples of all the nations. Let's look at one passage, uh, one part of this, Acts 14, 21 to 23. And you're, maybe you can tell you're getting close to my heart here with this work of missions and evangelism. Acts 14, 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, how did they make disciples? How did they fulfill the Great Commission? There it is, verse 21. And it's not by... There are many good works done in the name of Christ, founding hospitals, schools, etc., etc. And they can be very good things. But how did the apostles fulfill the Great Commission? They preached the gospel. And that was the means of making many disciples. That's what we're about. And having labored in the Philippines and by God's blessing, having seen fruit from clear, plain, simple proclamation of Jesus Christ in his saving work. This is God's means. And he owns it. And he uses it. He used it for you, right? The gospel proclaimed, whether one-on-one, -on -one, whether in a public setting, in a marketplace, like Paul at the Areopagus, whether in church service, whether on a street corner in Marstown, preaching the gospel, God's means of evangelizing sinners and bringing them to faith. And notice that they didn't merely leave those uh, believers and say, okay, now you're a Christian, carry on. They organized them into churches and Paul also oversaw the selection of elders. And the verb there for appointed elders is the verb for uh, raising of hands. In other words, Paul directed the selection through the suffrage of the people. I believe that's a proper uh, implication of the use of that word there. But moving on, 1 Corinthians 14. Now, Interesting that this passage was chosen as a support for the labor of the church in glorifying God through evangelizing sinners. But 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25 says this, But if all prophesy, and of course it's in that section of 1 Corinthians dealing with spiritual gifts, if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, right, this gift of prophesy, of prophecy, we do not have in the church any longer, but we do have the gifts which are necessary for an elder able to teach to teach God's word, which is already 
revealed to us in the scriptures to proclaim it. And it's through clear, understandable, not gibberish, proclamation, not foreign tongues. If I spoke in Tagalog, there might be one or two here that would understand me. But clear proclamation in your tongue that God works in bringing conviction, calling men and women, boys and girls to account, that is, to account to their creator, and to recognize God is in this place. I must answer. I must know him, or I am lost. Have you ever felt that? God's in this place. It's an awesome thing. May God continue to bless Trinity Baptist Church with this sense. God is here. I am in the presence of the creator of the universe, the almighty, the infinite, the majestic God. Now, let's be honest. We don't always come into this auditorium with that sense. We don't always leave it with that sense. But let's pray that God would come in such a way and convict all, call them to account, call us to account. I'm in the presence of God. And God uses a well-ordered, decent, orderly, clear proclamation worship service to convert sinners. We pray for that here. We long for that here. That God would come in power descend and dwell in our midst evidently first timothy chapter 2 now it's interesting that these verses were included in a section on evangelism because it deals with prayer first timothy 2 1 to 4 first then First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, I read these verses when I uh, was invited to pray at the 9-11 memorial here in Montville at the VFW. I read these verses. We are to pray for all men, for kings and those in authority, to lead a tranquil and quiet life. And then notice, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. One means in God's arsenal, if you might put it that way, of bringing sinners to salvation is our prayer meeting. And our public prayers here from the pulpit. God desires all men. Now, God doesn't elect all men, but he expresses here his heart. His heart is open. His heart is expressed as desiring men to be saved. And so if you're here this morning and you're not saved and you think, well, God's, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not elect. God's going to, you know, he's, he's, he's against me. Look at what he says. Are you a human being? And this is the generic term for men as opposed to animals. 
Are you a human being? Does God desire you to be saved? He says so. Who are you to contradict him? Come to this church and hear the word and receive it. He desires all men to be saved. And we pray that God would bless the preaching of the word here and bring you to knowledge of the truth. And again, the verse 15 of chapter 3 is included here. We order our church, we conduct ourselves in the household of God in such a way that God might be present, not, as it were, shunned to join us, but delight to join us so that we would see people saved. Now, we could add here the Great Commission, and, and I mentioned it earlier. We want to see people saved. Jesus commanded this. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. This is part of what we do as a church. And looking at my clock, I see that my time is gone, so I'll have to draw a line here in my notes. I didn't get as far as I thought I would, but it's all good stuff. And it's a good reminder for us. Why are we here? I hope that this reminder has, in some way, little, little fire in your heart. Yeah, I'm not just doing this by rote or by habit or uh, just because it's Sunday and uh, because mom and dad, you know, I come with them. We're here for a reason. We have a mission to glorify God. And one way we do it is evangelizing people who are lost and bound for hell. We want to see them saved. We want to see you saved if you're not yet. Why? God desires it. He says so. Don't put him off. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this opportunity to review this document which guides our life, that we might know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we ask that you would guide us, that we, as we come now to the worship service in just a little bit, that we might have our hearts kindled with fire burning to exalt, to magnify, to glorify our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to that end. And may today be marked as a day of your power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.